0: chapter five of cleopatra by georg ebers translated by mary j safford this librivox recording is in the public domain an artist especially a great artist finds it easy to give his house an attractive appearance he desires comfort in it and only the beautiful is comfortable to him Whatever would disturb Harmony offends his eye, and to secure the noblest ornament of his house he need not invite any stranger to cross its threshold. The muse, the best of assistants, joins him unbidden. Leonax, Barine's father, had been thus aided to transform the interior of his house into a very charming residence. He had painted on the walls of his own workroom incidents in the life of Alexander the Great, the founder of his native city, and on the frieze a procession of dancing cupids. Here Barine now received her guests, and the renown of these paintings was not one of the smallest inducements, which had led Antony to visit the young beauty, and to take his son, in whom he wished to awaken at least a fleeting pleasure in art. He also knew how to prize her beauty and her singing, but the ardent passion which had taken possession of him in his mature years was for Cleopatra alone. He whose easily won heart and susceptible fancy had urged him from one commonplace love to another had been bound by the queen with chains of indestructible and supernatural power by her side a barine seemed to him merely a work of art endowed with life and a voice that charmed the ear yet he owed her some pleasant hours and he could not help bestowing gifts upon any one to whom he was indebted for anything pleasant he liked to be considered the most generous spendthrift on earth and the polished bracelet set with a gem on which was carved apollo playing on his lyre Surrounded by the listening muses looked very simple, but was really an ornament of priceless value, for the artist who made it was deemed the best stone-cutter in Alexandria in the time of Philadelphus, and each one of the tiny figures sculptured on the bit of onyx scarcely three fingers wide was a carefully executed masterpiece of the most exquisite beauty antony had chosen it because he deemed it a fitting gift for the woman whose song had pleased him he had not thought of asking its value indeed only a connoisseur would have perceived it and as the circlet was not showy and well became her beautiful arm barine liked to wear it had not the war taken him away antony's second visit would certainly not have been his last besides the singing which enthralled him the conversation had been gay and brilliant And in addition to Leonax's paintings, he had seen other beautiful works of art, which the former had obtained by exchanging with many distinguished companions. Nor was there any lack of plastic creations in the spacious apartment, to which the flashing of the water poured by a powerful man from the goatskin bottle on his shoulder into a shell lent a special charm the master who had carved this stooping nubian had also created the much-discussed statues of the royal lovers the clay eros who with bent knee was aiming at a victim visible to himself alone was also his work antony when paying his second visit had laughingly laid the garland he wore before the greatest of human conquerors while a short time ago his son antyllus had rudely thrust his bouquet of flowers into the opening of the curved right arm which was drawing the string in doing so the statue had been injured now the flowers lay unheeded upon the little altar at the end of the large room lighted only by a single lamp for the ladies had left it with their guest they were in barine's favourite apartment a small room where there were several pictures by her dead father. Antillus's bouquet and the damage to the clay statue of Eros had played a prominent part in the conversation between the three and rendered Archibius's task easier. Berenike had greeted the guest with a complaint of the young Roman's recklessness and unseemly conduct, to which Barine added the declaration that they had now sacrificed enough to Zeus Xenios, the god of hospitality. She meant to devote her future life to the modest household gods and to Apollo, to whom she owed the gift of song. Archibius had listened silently in great surprise until she had finished her explanation, and declared that henceforth she intended to live alone with her mother, instead of having her father's workshop filled with guests the young beauty's vivid imagination transported her to this new and quieter life but spite of the clear and glowing hues in which she described her anticipations her grey-haired listener could not have believed in them fully a subtle smile sometimes flitted over his grave somewhat melancholy face that of a man who has ceased to wrestle in the arena of life, and after severe conflict now preferred to stand among the spectators and watch others win or lose the prize of victory. Doubtless the wounds which he had received still ached, yet his sorrowful experiences did not prevent his being an attentive observer. The expression of his clear eyes showed that he mentally shared whatever aroused his sympathy, whoever understood how to listen thus and moreover the prominence of the brow above the nose showed it was also a trained thinker could not fail to be a good counsellor and as such he was regarded by many and first of all by the queen the wise deliberation which was one of his characteristic traits showed itself on this occasion for though he had come to persuade barine try a country residence he refrained from doing until she had exhausted the story of her own affairs and inquired the important cause of his visit in the principal matter, his request was granted ere he made it. So he could begin with the query whether the mother and daughter did not think that the transition to the new mode of life could be effected more easily if they were absent from the city a short time. It would awaken comment they should close their house against guests on the morrow, and as the true reason could not be given, many would be offended. If, on the contrary, they could resolve to quit the capital for a few weeks, many, it is true, would lament their decision, but what was allotted to all alike could be resented by no one. Berenike eagerly assented, but Barine grew thoughtful. Then Archibius begged her to speak frankly, and after she had asked where they could, he proposed his country estate his keen grey eyes had perceived that something bound her so firmly to the city that in the case of a true woman like barine it must be an affair of the heart he had evidently judged correctly for at his prediction that there would be no lack of visits from her dearest friends she raised her head her blue eyes sparkled brightly and when archibius paused she to her mother exclaiming gaily we will go again the vivid imagination daughter conjured the future before her in distinct outlines she alone knew whom she meant when she spoke of the visitors she expected at irenia archibius's estate the name meant the place of peace and it pleased her archibius listened smilingly but when she began to assign him also a part in driving the little sardinian horses and pursuing the birds He interrupted her with the statement that whether he could speedily allow himself a pleasure which he should so keenly enjoy, that of breathing the country air with such charming guests, would depend upon the fate of another. Thank the gods he had been able to come here with a lighter heart, because just before his departure he had heard of a splendid victory gained by the queen. The ladies would perhaps permit him to remain a little longer as he was expecting confirmation of the news." It was evident that he awaited it in great suspense, and that his heart was by no means free from anxiety. Berenike shared it, and her pleasant face, which had hitherto reflected her delight at her daughter's sensible resolution, was now clouded with care, as Archibius began, the object of my presence here, you are making it very easy for me to attain it. If I deemed it honest, I could now conceal the fact that I had sought you to induce you to leave the city. I see no peril from the boyish insolence of the son of Antony. The point in question, child, is merely to put yourself out of the reach of Caesarean. If you could place me in the moon, it would please me best, as far as he is concerned, replied Barine eagerly. That is just what induced me to change our mode of life, since my door cannot be closed against the boy, who, though still under a tutor, uses his rank as a key to open it and just think of being compelled to address that dreamer with eyes pleading for help by the title of king. Yet what mighty impulse might not be slumbering in the breast of a son of Julius Caesar and Cleopatra, said Archibius, and passion, I know, my child, that it is no fault of yours, has now awakened within him. Whatever the result may be, it must fill his mother's heart with anxiety." that is why it is needful to hasten your departure and to keep your destination a secret he will attempt no violence but he is the child of his parents and some unexpected act may be anticipated from him you startle me cried barine you transform the cooing dove which entered my house into a dangerous griffin as such you may regard him said the other warningly you will be a welcome guest barine but i invited you whom i have loved from your earliest childhood the daughter of my dearest friend not merely to do you a service at arinia but to save from grief or even annoyance the person to whom who is not aware of it i owe everything the words conveyed to both ladies the knowledge that though they were dear to archibius he would sacrifice them and with them perhaps all the rest of the world, for the peace and happiness of the queen. Barine had expected nothing else. She knew that Cleopatra had made the philosopher's son, a wealthy man and the owner of extensive estates. But she also felt that the source of his loyal devotion to the queen, over whom he watched like a tender father, was due to other causes. Cleopatra prized him also. Had he been ambitious, he could have stood at the helm of the ship of state as epitrope long ago but the whole city knew it he had more than once refused to accept a permanent office because he believed that he could serve his mistress better as an unassuming unnoticed counsellor berenike had told barine that the relations between cleopatra and archibius dated back to their childhood but she had learned no particulars various rumours were afloat which in the course of time had been richly adorned and interwoven with anecdotes and barine naturally lent the most ready credence to those which asserted that the princess in her earliest youth had cherished a childish love for the philosopher's son now her friend's conduct led her to believe it when archibius paused the young beauty assured him that she understood him And as the alabaster hanging lamp and a three-branched light cast a brilliant glow upon the portrait which her father had painted of the nineteen-year-old queen, and afterwards copied for his own household, she pointed to it, and, pursuing the current of her own thoughts, asked the question, was she not marvelously beautiful at that time? As your father's work represents her, was the reply, Leonax painted the portrait of Octavia on the opposite side the same year, and perhaps the artist deemed the Roman the fairer woman. He pointed as he spoke to a likeness of Octavianus's sister, to whom Barine's father had painted as the young wife of Marcellus, her first husband. "'Oh, no,' said Berenike, "'I still remember perfectly how Leonax returned in those days.' What woman might not have been jealous of his enthusiasm for the Roman Hera? At that time I had not seen the portrait, and when I asked whether he thought Octavia more beautiful than the queen, for whom Eros had inflamed his heart, as in the case of most of the beautiful women he painted, he exclaimed, You know his impetuous manner. Octavia stands foremost in the ranks of those who are called beautiful or less beautiful, The other, Cleopatra, stands alone, and can be compared with no one. Archibius bent his head in assent, then said firmly, But, as a child, when I first saw her, she would have been the fairest even in the dance of the young gods of love. How old was she then? asked Barine eagerly. Eight years, he answered. How far in the past it is, yet I have not forgotten a single hour. Barine now earnestly entreated him to tell them the story of those days, but Archibius gazed thoughtfully at the floor for some time ere he raised his head and answered, Perhaps it will be well if you learn more of the woman for whose sake I ask a sacrifice at your hands. Arius is your brother and uncle. He stands near to Octavianus, for he was his intellectual guide, and I know that he reveres the Roman's sister Octavia as a goddess. Antony is now struggling with Octavianus for the sovereignty of the world. Octavia succumbed in the conflict against the woman of whom you desire to hear. It is not my place to judge her, but I may instruct and warn. Roman nations burn incense to Octavia, and when Cleopatra's name is uttered, they veil their faces indignantly. Here in Alexandria many imitate them. Whoever upholds shining purity may hope to win a share of the radiance emanating from it. They call Octavia the lawful wife, and Cleopatra the criminal who robbed her of her husband's heart. Not I, exclaimed Barine eagerly, how often I have heard my uncle say that Antony and Cleopatra were fired with the most ardent love for each other. Never did the arrows of Eros pierce two hearts more deeply Then it became necessary to save the state from civil war and bloodshed. Antony consented to form an alliance with his rival, and as security for the sincerity of the reconciliation, he gave his hand in marriage to Octavia, whose first husband Marcellus had just died. His hand, I say, only his hand, for his heart was captive to the Queen of Egypt. And if Antony was faithless to the wife to whom statecraft had bound him he kept his pledge to the other who had an earlier better title if cleopatra did not give up the man to whom she had sworn fidelity for ever she was right a thousand times right in my eyes no matter how often my mother rebukes me cleopatra in the eyes of the immortals is and always will be antony's real wife the other though on her marriage day no custom no word no stroke of the stylus no gesture was omitted is the intruder in a bond of love which rejoices the gods however it may anger mortals and forgive me mother virtuous matrons berenike had listened with blushing cheeks to her vivacious daughter Now, with timid earnestness, she interrupted, I know that those are the views of the new times, that Antony, in the eyes of the Egyptians, and probably also according to their customs, is the rightful husband of the queen. I know, too, that you are both against me. Yet Cleopatra is in reality a Greek, and therefore eternal gods. I can sincerely pity her. But the marriage has been solemnized, and I cannot blame Octavia. She rears and cherishes, as if they were her own, the children of her faithless husband and Fulvia, his first wife, who have no claim upon her. It is more than human to take the stones from the path of the man who became her foe, as she does. No woman in Alexandria can pray more fervently than I that Cleopatra and her friend may conquer Octavianus. His cold nature, highly as my brother esteems him, is repellent to me. But when I gaze at Octavia's beautiful, chaste, queenly, noble countenance, the mirror of true womanly purity, you can rejoice, Archibius added, completing the sentence, and laying his right hand soothingly on the arm of the excited woman, only it would be advisable at this time to put the portrait elsewhere.' and rest satisfied with confiding your opinion of Octavia to your brother and a friend as reliable as myself. If we conquer, such things may pass. If not, the messenger tarries long. Here, Barine again entreated him to use the time. She had only once had the happiness of being noticed by the queen, just after her song at the Adonis Festival. Then Cleopatra had advanced to thank her. She said only a few kind words, but in a voice which seemed to penetrate the inmost depths of her heart, and bind her with invisible threads. Meanwhile Barine's eyes met those of her sovereign, and at first they roused an ardent desire to press her lips even on the hem of her robe, but afterwards she felt as if a venomous serpent had crawled out of the most beautiful flower. Here Archibius interrupted her with the remark that he remembered perfectly how, after the song, Antony had addressed her at the same time as the queen and Cleopatra lacked no feminine weakness. Jealousy? asked Barine in astonishment. I was not presumptuous enough to admit it. I secretly feared that Alexis, the brother of Philostratus, had prejudiced her. He is as ill-disposed towards me as the man who was my husband, but everything connected with those two is so base and shameful that I will not allow it to cloud this pleasant hour. Yet the fear that Alexis might have slandered me to the queen is not groundless. He is as shrewd as his brother, and through Antony, into whose favor he ingratiated himself, is always in communication with Cleopatra. He went to the war with him. "'I learned that too late, and am utterly powerless against Antony,' replied Archibius. "'But was it not natural that I should fear he had prejudiced the queen, Asperine? "'At any rate I imagined that I detected a hostile expression in her eyes, "'and it repelled me, though at first I had been so strongly attracted towards her. "'And had not that other step between you, you could not have turned from her again.' said Archibius. The first time I saw her, I was but a mere boy, and she, as I've already said, a child eight years old. Barine nodded gratefully to Archibius, brought the distaff to her mother, poured water into the wine in the mixing vessel, and after at first leaning comfortably back among the cushions, she soon bent forward in a listening attitude with her elbow propped on her knee, and her chin supported by her hand. Berenike drew the flax from the distaff, at first slowly, then faster and faster. "'You know my country house in the Canopus,' the guest began. "'It was originally a small summer palace, belonging to the royal family, and underwent little change after we moved into it. Even the garden is unaltered. It was full of shady old trees.' olympus the leech had chosen this place that my father might complete within its walls the work of education entrusted to him you shall hear the story at that time alexandria was in a state of turmoil for rome had not recognized the king and ruled over us like fate though it had not acknowledged the will by which the miserable alexander bequeathed egypt to him like a field or a slave The king of Egypt, who called himself the new Dionysus, was a weak man, whose birth did not give him the full right to the sovereignty. You know that the people called him the flute player. He really had no greater pleasure than to hear music and listen to his own performances. He played by no means badly on more than one instrument, and moreover, as a reveler, did honor to the other name. Whoever kept sober at the festival of Dionysus, whose incarnate second self he regarded himself, incurred his deepest displeasure. The flute-player's wife, Queen Tiphina, and her oldest daughter, she bore your name, Berenike, ruined his life. Compared with them, the king was worthy and virtuous. What had become of the heroes and the high-minded princes of the house of Ptolemy, every passion and crime had found a home in their palaces. The flute-player, Cleopatra's father, was by no means the worst. He was a slave to his own caprices. No one had taught him to bridle his passions. Where it served his purpose, even death was summoned to his aid. But this was a custom of the last sovereigns of his race. In one respect he was certainly superior to most of them he still possessed a capacity to feel a loathing for the height of crime to believe in virtue and loftiness of soul and the possibility of implanting them in youthful hearts when a boy he had been under the influence of an excellent teacher whose precepts had lingered in his memory and led him to determine to withdraw his favorite children two girls from their mother's sway at least as far as possible i learned afterwards that it had been his desire to confide the princesses wholly to my parents care but an invincible power opposed this though greeks might be permitted to instruct the royal children in knowledge the egyptians would not yield the right to their religious education the leech olympus you know the good old man had insisted that the delicate cleopatra must spend the coldest winter months in upper egypt where the sky was never clouded, and the summer near the sea in a shady garden. The little palace at Canopus was devoted to this purpose. When we moved there, it was entirely unoccupied, but the princesses were soon to be brought to us. During the winter, Olympus preferred the island of Philae on the Nubian frontier because the famous Temple of Isis was there and its priests willingly undertook to watch over the children. The queen would not listen to any of these plans. Leaving Alexandria and spending the winter on a lonely island in the tropics was an utterly incomprehensible idea. So she let the king have his way, and no doubt was glad to be relieved from the care of the children, for even after her royal husband's exile from the city, she never visited her daughters. True, death allowed her only a short time to do so. Her oldest daughter, Berenike, who became her successor, followed her example, and troubled herself very little about her sisters. I heard afterwards that she was very glad to know that they were in charge of persons who filled their minds with other thoughts than the desire to rule. Her brothers were reared at Lochius by our countryman Theodotus under the eyes of their guardian Pothinus. Our family life was, of course, wholly transformed by the reception of the royal children. In the first place, we moved from our house in the museum square into the little palace at Canopus, and the big shady garden delighted us. I remember as though it were but yesterday the morning, I was then a boy of fifteen, when my father told us that two of the king's daughters would soon become members of the household." there were three of us children charmian who went to the war with the queen because iris our niece was ill i myself and Strayton, who died long ago we were urged to treat the princesses with the utmost courtesy and consideration and we perceived that their reception really demanded respect for the palace which we had found empty and desolate was refurnished from roof to foundation the day before they were expected horses chariots, and litters came while boats and a splendid state galley fully manned arrived by sea then a train of male and female slaves appeared among them two fat eunuchs i can still see the angry look with which my father surveyed all these people he drove at once to the city and on his return his clear eyes were as untroubled as ever A court official accompanied him, and only that portion of the useless amount of luggage and number of persons that my father desired remained. The princesses were to come the next morning. It was at the end of February. Flowers were blooming in the grass and on the bushes, while the foliage of the trees glittered with the fresh green which the rising sap gives to the young leaves. I was sitting on a strong bough of a sycamore tree, which grew opposite to the house watching for them. Their arrival was delayed, and as I gazed meanwhile over the garden, I thought it must surely please them, for not a palace in the city had one so beautiful. At last the litters appeared. They had neither runners nor attendants, as my father had requested, and when the princesses alighted both at the same moment, I knew not which way to turn my eyes first, for the creature that fluttered like a dragonfly rather than stepped from the first, that it was not a girl like other mortals. She seemed like a wish, a hope. When the dainty, beautiful creature turned her head hither and thither, and at last gazed questioningly, as if beseeching help, into the faces of my father and mother, who stood at the gate to receive her, it seemed to me that such must have been the aspect of Psyche, when she stood pleading for mercy at the throne of Zeus. But it was worth while to look at the other also. Was that Cleopatra? she might have been the elder for she was as tall as her sister but how utterly unlike from the waving hair to every movement of the hands and body the former it was cleopatra had seemed to me as if she were flying Everything about the second figure, on the contrary, was solid, nay, even seemed to offer positive resistance. She sprang from the litter and alighted on the ground with both feet at once, clung firmly to the door, and haughtily flung back her head, crowned with a wealth of dark locks. Her complexion was pink and white, and her blue eyes sparkled brightly enough, but the expression with which she gazed at my parents was defiant, rather than questioning, and as she glanced around her red lips curled scornfully as though she deemed her surroundings despicable and unworthy of her royal birth. This irritated me against the seven-year-old child, yet I said to myself that though it was very beautiful here thanks to my father's care, perhaps it appeared plain and simple when compared with the marble, gold, and purple of the royal palace whence she came." Her features, too, were regular and beautiful, and she would have attracted attention by her loveliness among a multitude. When I soon heard her issue imperious commands, and defiantly insist upon the fulfillment of every wish, I thought in my boyish ignorance that Arsinoe must be the elder, for she was better suited to wield a sceptre than her sister.' i said so to my brother and charmian but we all soon saw which really possessed queenly majesty for arsinoe if her will were crossed wept screamed and raged like a lunatic or if that proved useless begged and teased while if cleopatra wanted anything she obtained it in a different way even at that time she knew what weapons would give her victory and while using them she still remained the child of a king no artisan's daughter could have been further removed from airs of majestic pathos than this embodiment of the most charming childlike grace but if anything for which her passionate nature ardently longed was positively refused she understood how to obtain it by the melody of her voice the spell of her eyes and in extreme cases by a silent tear when to such tears were added uplifted hands and a few sweet words such as it would make me happier don't you see how it hurts me resistance was impossible and in after years also her silent tears and the marvelous music of her voice won her a victory in the decisive questions of life we children were soon playmates and friends for my parents did not wish the princesses to begin their studies until after they felt at home with us this pleased arsinoe although she could already read and write but cleopatra more than once asked to hear something from my father's store of wisdom of which she had been told The king and her former teacher had cherished the highest expectations from the brilliant intellect of this remarkable child, and Olympus once laid his hand on my curls and bade me take care that the princess did not outstrip the philosopher's son. I had always occupied one of the foremost places, and laughingly escaped, assuring him that there was no danger. But I soon learned that this warning was not groundless. You will think that, the old fool's heart has played him a trick and in the magic garden of childish memories the gifted young girl was transformed into a goddess that she certainly was not for the immortals are free from the faults and weaknesses of humanity and what robbed cleopatra of the renown of resembling the gods asked barine eagerly a subtle smile not wholly free from reproach accompanied archibius's reply Had I spoken of her virtues, you would hardly have thought of asking further details. But why should I try to conceal what she has displayed to the world openly enough throughout her whole life? Falsehood and hypocrisy were as unfamiliar to her as fishing is to the sons of the desert. The fundamental principles which have dominated this rare creature's life and character to the present day are two ceaseless desires. First, to surpass every one, even in the most difficult achievements, and secondly to love and to be loved in return. From them emanated what raised her above all other women. Ambition and love will also sustain her like two mighty wings on the proud height to which they have borne her, so long as they dwell harmoniously in her fiery soul." Hitherto a rare favor of destiny has permitted this, and may the Olympians grant that thus it may ever be. Here Archibius paused, wiped the perspiration from his brow, asked if the messenger had arrived, and ordered him to be admitted as soon as he appeared. Then he went on as calmly as before the princesses were members of our household and in the course of time they seemed like sisters during the first winter the king allowed them to spend only the most inclement months at phyle for he was unwilling to live without them true he saw them rarely enough weeks often elapsed without a visit But on the other hand, he often came day after day to our garden, clad in plain garments and borne in an unpretending litter, for these visits were kept secret from everyone save the leech Olympus. I often saw the tall, strong man with red, bloated face playing with his children like a mechanic, who had just returned from work, but he usually remained only a short time seeming to be satisfied with having seen them again. Perhaps he merely wished to assure himself that they were comfortable with us. At any rate, no one was permitted to go near the group of plain trees where he talked with them. But it is easy to hide amid the dense foliage of these trees, so my knowledge that he questioned them is not solely hearsay. Cleopatra was happy with us from the beginning. Arsinoe needed a longer time, but the king valued only the opinion of his older child, his darling, on whom he feasted his eyes and ears like a lover. He often shook his heavy head at the sight of her, and when she gave him one of her apt replies, he laughed so loudly that the sound of his deep resonant voice was heard as far as the house. Once I saw, tear after tear, course down his flushed cheeks, and yet his visit was shorter than usual. The closed har mammaxa in which he came bore him from our house directly to the vessel which was to convey him to Cyprus and Rome. The Alexandrians, headed by the queen, had forced him to leave the city and the country. He was indeed unworthy of the crown, but he loved his little daughter like a true father. Still it was terrible, monstrous for him to invoke curses upon the mother and sister of the children in their presence, and in the same breath command them to hate and execrate them, but to love and never forget him. I was then seventeen and Cleopatra ten years old, I, who loved my parents better than my life, felt an icy chill run through my veins, and then a touch upon my heart like balsam, as I heard little Arsinoe after her father had gone whisper to her sister, We will hate them. May the gods destroy them. And when Cleopatra answered with tearful eyes, Let us rather be better than they. Very good indeed, Arsinoe, that the immortals may love us and bring our father back. Because then he will make you queen, replied Arsinoe sneeringly, still trembling with angry excitement. Cleopatra gazed at her with a troubled look. Her tense features showed that she was weighing the meaning of the words, and I can still see her as she suddenly drew up her small figure and said proudly, Yes, I will be queen. Then her manner changed, and in the sweetest tones of her soft voice she said beseechingly, You won't say such naughty things again, will you? This was at the time that my father's instruction began to take possession of her mind. The prediction of Olympus was fulfilled. True, I attended the school of oratory, but when my father set the royal maiden a lesson, I was permitted to repeat mine on the same subject, and frequently I could not help admitting that Cleopatra had succeeded better than I soon there were difficult problems to master for the intellect of this wonderful child demanded stronger food and she was introduced into philosophy my father himself belonged to the school of epicurus and succeeded far beyond his expectations in rousing cleopatra's interest in his master's teachings She had been made acquainted with the other great philosophers also, but always returned to Epicurus, and induced the rest of us to live with her as a true disciple of the noble Samian. Your father and brother have doubtless made you familiar with the precepts of the Stoa, yet you have certainly heard that Epicurus spent the latter part of his life with his friends and pupils in quiet meditation and instructive conversation in his garden at Athens. We too, according to Cleopatra's wish, were to live thus and call ourselves disciples of Epicurus. With the exception of Arsinoe, who preferred gayer pastimes, and to which she drew my brother Straton, at that time a giant in strength, we all liked the plan. I was chosen master, but I perceived that Cleopatra desired the position, so she took my place during our next leisure afternoon we paced up and down the garden and the conversation about the chief good was so eager cleopatra directed it with so much skill and decided doubtful questions so happily that we reluctantly obeyed the brazen gong which summoned us to the house and spent the whole evening in anticipating the next afternoon end of chapter five part one